you're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips, and I'm the head of urban advocacy at Hip Fee Hype. Hip Fee Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible, and more intuitive solutions to our cities. You're listening to the second episode of Hip Fee Hype's first podcast series. What does community mean to you? What role can well-designed density play in enabling vertical living communities in Australia? What does this look like and why is it important? Today, I sit down with Liam Wallace, Director of Hip v. Hype, and James Legg, Founding Director of Six Degrees Architects, to talk about the story of Nightingale 2. The Nightingale model has received a lot of attention for promising a sustainable, accessible future for housing in Australian cities. However, no project is immune from the complexities of financing, urban planning requirements and construction challenges. Today we take a look at how Nightingale 2, the second project delivered under the Nightingale housing model, came to be. This is a story of how an all-electric project containing 20 apartments, three retail spaces, shared communal amenity and no car parking navigated the development process from first idea through to operational performance. Located on a small 500 square metre slither of land in the Melbourne suburb of Fairfield, which was previously owned by the State Rail Authority, the Nightingale 2 apartments demonstrates the potential for underutilised yet well-located state land to be responsibly repurposed. The project was designed by Six Degrees Architects and delivered as a collaboration between Hip V Hype and Six Degrees, in accordance with the principles of Nightingale Housing. The project is an alternative model for development, which seeks to provide high-quality, environmentally sustainable housing at prices more accessible to people who are increasingly priced out of the housing market in locations close by to jobs and essential amenities. Liam Wallace is joined by James Legg to describe how the project came together. Hello, everyone out there. Hey, Laura. How did Nightingale 2 come about? Look, the the project came about initially. Nightingale 1 was up and going. Jeremy from Breathe had got that up and going. And and then came to us at Six Degrees and said, would you like to do the second one? We want, you know, obviously we want to keep this thing going. Someone's got else has got to take the baton on. Let's get going with, um, are you interested in doing Nightingale 2? And by the way, here's the development manager. Liam Wallace and why don't you guys have a chat and see what you can work, work out together and see if you can get a project up and going. That was a great and when we said yes we were definitely interested because Nightingale is a great idea, it's a great model um, it's a great way in which we can more transparently work out where costs go into projects um, and try and tailor the decisions that are made around projects for the benefit of those people who are going to live in the, pro- in the projects, so the residents themselves rather than necessarily investors. So I mean, I guess that's how it came about. And then Liam and I set about the difficult task of raising money, finding a site, etc. Kind of an interesting process, I guess, back you know, almost four and a half years ago, but obviously Jeremy had um, generated a lot of energy and interest in this idea of sort of a, an architect-led development model and some broader ideas around what housing or higher density housing meant that was focused on delivering homes for people as opposed to boxes, uh, you know, to return funds to investors. And I think it's a really simple, powerful idea and and something that we're really keen to kind of be a part of. And having studied architecture at university, but having sort of chosen a path to head 
down the um, more client side path of development um, in order to better understand, I guess, the financial feasibility of projects and how to how to enable better quality. Sort of after that, having been my path, Nightingale really represented the first opportunity for me to kind of put what I'd learned in the development sector to practice in enabling, um, you know, the sort of outcomes that that I guess I'd, I'd, I'd envisioned whilst back at university and sort of, and, and, you know, in particular on exchange in Copenhagen, having seen some buildings over there and sort of thought, well, why, why isn't our skyline full of those sorts of buildings back here in Melbourne and really wanting to understand that in detail. So that, that's sort of, um, that's sort of where we were in, in the process and, you know, the opportunity to work with the Six Degrees guys, having really watched their work closely over a number of years was just a great opportunity really. And we set about the, kind of slightly naive but you know admirable task of of pulling together a, a a new way of thinking about how a project you know of this scale in this location could be could be ultimately delivered well speaking to those objectives i suppose what are, what are the benefits of, of living in density which might have been you know experienced in in europe and elsewhere look i've talked about this quite a lot but i, I i'm firmly of the belief that melbourne and indeed so the largest cities in australia have been learning over the last 20 years how to live in high density. Um, we used to do it to a degree, to walk up flats, great walk up flats in St Kilda and um, some of the south southeastern suburbs. And there, uh, there is the, you know, the, the, the old six pack obviously, which are, some of which are more successful than others. Um, however, generally speaking, Australians haven't really been that enamoured of the idea of living high density. Which is a little strange because they'll travel and they'll, they'll they'll visit cities which they love and the density that they love in these in these cities all around all around the world, Europe and South America and America and and they'll 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 love the activity and street life that you get in these cities, but we're always of the of the opinion that that's not how Australians live. They they live on a big quarter acre block. That's gradually changed, I think, over twenty years. First of all. It's become a necessity, obviously, to increase density or forever sprawl. Um, but also, I think, to start with, um, and this is probably the problem, to start with, some of these apartments were built um, as investments for investors. Obviously, people were going to live in them, but the residents weren't really thought about much. So that, I think, tended to create this picture that apartments are OK for investors and for people who are going to stay there for briefly, perhaps as students. And that's gradually changed to being apartments might be okay for you to buy and live in for a little while before you bought your house, to gradually changing to, to a point now where people realise and are educated enough to see bad apartments and good apartments and understand the difference between them, having probably moved between a few of them, um, and now say, well, no, if it's a good enough apartment and there's a nice enough community, then there's really no reason why I can't live in one. Um, and I like living somewhere in a, in a suburb which I like, near the facilities and near the jobs that I want. I don't want to live on the edge of Melbourne. And all I can afford is either the edge of Melbourne or somewhere in a suburb that I like in a higher density, and it actually brings a lot of other things as well. So I think it's, it's what it brings... It's a very long-winded way to answer your question, but I think it, it's what it brings, the possibilities of community, um, the proximity to the things you like in the areas that you like and the activities you like in your work and shortening your, your work day through your distance of travel to work, etc., uh, which is slightly ironic in this time of COVID. But anyway, I think those are the things that, that, that high density living brings. And, and I think now Australians are starting to understand that it's possible to have high density living, which is good, um, which is like 
good European high-density living or good South American high-density living. And I suppose from a designer, developer, enabler's perspective as hippie hype, I suppose how do we kind of shift that, that conversation so you know, apartment living does become a bit more attractive to residents? I think we're sort of at a really interesting time for apartment living more broadly, um, particularly in the Melbourne context. You sort of look at what's happened, you know, particularly in that investor-driven apartment market over the last 20 years. It sort of kicked off, let's say, with the central equity model in and around South Bank and it's really proliferated in a number of different forms, you know, throughout the inner city. And then, you know, more recently over the last kind of five to eight years has manifested itself in sort of smaller scale apartment buildings that are dotted out around the suburban framework. And I think, you know, you kind of look at the financial settings that have underpinned that trend and you look at something as simple as pre-sales. So this idea that you have to sell, you know, X percentage of apartments off the plan before you can de-risk the project sufficiently to enable uh, one of the big four banks to provide construction funding. And it's kind of led this little bit of an arms race in in, in off-the-plan marketing um, strategies and the incorporation of gimmicks into buildings and configurations for apartments that, you know, lubricate that off-the-plan off the sales process but don't necessarily you know, have a focus on the end user in creating a product that's usable and is, is genuinely a good apartment to live in. You know, M- Melbourne's got an interesting history. James mentioned the walk-up examples. I think they still represent really good value for, for a buyer that they're, they're larger, um, sort of less constrained. But the apartments through this kind of, this, this, this recent wave have just been under that economic pressure of smaller is better you know, more price pointed, higher investment yields for investors. And, and that's really driven that equation. An idea like Nightingale's presented a really kind of interesting circuit breaker, if you like. And potentially even before Nightingale, you look at the Commons as an example, which is really the project that kicked a lot of this off. And, you know, even, even an idea as simple as a two bedroom apartment with one bathroom or an apartment building with timber windows or an apartment building with glazed staircase or, you know, an apartment building with a beehive on the roof. And so these really simple ideas. I remember, you know, when the commons had just been completed, I, I took a, had actually a number of different investor types um, through the building. We took one, one particular investor through the commons at the time. I, I remember just like taking him there and we were talking about these ideas and there were ideas that a lot of people had had more broadly in the industry and a lot of people knew particularly designers around you know good space for people and spatial arrangements that would lead to a great place to be but you know the importance of seeing you know and believing uh, really really kind of came home to me that day in seeing the the reaction I got from this particular investor to some of the themes that were included in the commons and it's just you know I, w- I, I know that I would not have been able to convince um, that particular investor to take the risk to create a building like that. But at the same time, you knew that the qualities of those apartments were qualities that people really responded to. Um, so I think, you know, at points in time, you, you do need those circuit breakers. And the Commons was a really big circuit breaker at a point in time and has, has enabled so much, you know, to, to now come out of that point in time and Nightingale is an example you know you've got 
guys like Milieu more broadly. Um, you've got companies like Mab now, sort of big scale developers getting into this space, Stockland, Mervac, um, being more open to these ideas of, you know, sustainability, natural light, open walkways, some of these attributes that create great space. Um, but you just needed that moment in time to, to sort of convince an inherently conservative industry that, hang on a minute, people actually kind of want this stuff and that the boxes you're producing for your investors, you know, might not necessarily be um, the best outcome for the people living in those projects. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they needed, they needed to be reminded, I think, that they were creating homes mm. that was for people to live in. Mm. Um, and that, yes, some of them might be owned by investors, but at some point someone's going to go, well, I like that one better than that one because that one actually feels like my home and that one just feels like a mm. white plasterboard box with a piece of stainless steel on it. Um, so I think there's, yeah, it, it, needed, to, it needed to happen. I, mean, I, I also wonder sometimes whether or not the design of apartments at the stage, in this the, the, the not-so-good investor stage, if we're talking about sort of a few years ago, was almost like we're trying to get a high-end... Um, a high-end idea of a New York apartment and then we're just taking out all the really expensive stuff. You're going up and you've got a view maybe but all the materials and all the finishes and everything else is going rather than thinking from the other way around and going, it's got to be a home, how can we make it feel like a home relatively inexpensively and build that up and take that up through the, through the building because it doesn't need a lot. It just needs moments, it needs bits and pieces uh, and it needs to have thought around as Liam said light ventilation and amenity basic amenity things and then if you get them in and then you get small moments of material and small moments of of bespoke then all of a sudden it's a completely different building so I like I'm I'm interested in your comment a little bit on this one James but you know you look at you look at Fender Catsalides and you look at kind of what Nanda was able to do through the mid to late 90s and sort of early thousands yeah and they still stand as some of the best apartment buildings in melbourne without a doubt there's one around the corner from the studio just up in royal park there it's an absolute classic building um but they've got 3.5 meter ceilings and all the rooms are big and they're they're almost like they've built houses and stacked them up you know the, the 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 it seems anyway to me that it seems like they've his idea at that stage was let's build apartments. No one builds apartments. We'll build some apartments and they should feel like houses. So Yeah, that to me takes it that next level. You know, you, you, had, a, you had the emergence of like this investor-based model a la your central equity, but at the same time you had FKA designing some of the best apartment buildings in Melbourne that stand really as yep. some of the best apartment buildings created. Yep. They were created in very similar economic conditions and at a point in time that economic model stopped working uh, and like it's something I don't have an answer to it's something I'd love to look into in a little bit more detail and perhaps discuss with some of the people involved but there's clearly a point in time where it became very very difficult to you know invest in the quality of building that they were able to invest in. Price of land, though, was essentially the price to, of land going up. It has to probably be linked to that and potentially something around funding requirements, mm. um, potentially something around pre-sales kind of kicking in and disincentivizing the spend on the actual building itself and instead yep. refocusing on kind of, you know, this interior design-led arms yeah. race of, you know, tempanyaki bars and 
and and you know they, these sort of attributes that look great on paper but but don't actually add much value and there's i mean i guess there's also the slippery slope of if you allow the apartments to get smaller and meaner then if you're a developer you look at the block of land and see how many of these can i get in because that's what is going to drive how much I'm going to sell. So that puts a value on the land, and the person who owns the land does the same calculation. So that pushes up the land, and therefore QED, what you get out the other end, is what you're allowed to get out the other end from the visa. So that must have pushed it. I'm guessing that's pushed it as well. It's pushed... Yeah, I'm waffling now. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's sort of the double-edged sword, too, of, I guess, regulations as well. You know, the more, the more difficult you make it to work your way through an approvals process... You know, it, it does have the dual impact of watering down outcomes, and I, I, I've seen that play out over the last couple of years. Where, you know, the permit application process, in seeking to police against poor quality outcomes, arguably is reinforcing some of those outcomes by virtue of kind of complexity uh, and cost that's built in to that process. Like I know that's that's a challenge we've had as a business, and it's a challenge the Ninety Gale projects have had um, that I've been involved in. Number one and two, mm. sort of, you know, seeking to create something that the planning scheme can't yet really wrap its head around, falling foul of that, and ending up at the tribunal and and associated costs mm. um, that really sort of limit your ability to invest where you might have otherwise wanted to invest. You know, you end up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with sort of legal teams and expert witnesses uh, as opposed to potentially investing that that in the building itself. Yeah, yeah. Problem of the planning process. I mean, you know, we could keep talking about this forever because there are issues around the planning process, but, but potentially that um, if you've got a clearer planning process that says you know, you've got a plot ratio of this, this is how high you can go, this is what you can deliver, it makes a level, level playing field for everyone. Um, and then you know what the outcome's going to be. And perhaps you reward better outcomes if you play the ball, play by the, if you play by, by, by the rules and, and, and improve the outcome, then perhaps you get a little bit of return from council. But just clear rules, I think, would make it more straightforward rather than this adversarial sort of, we'll have to get whatever we can get. We'll try it and we'll push as hard as we can and we'll go to VCAT. And it's just crazy. I, I just respect that these buildings exist, but like Edmund Corrigan is an example of kind of an architectural firm that's built some crazy buildings, some pretty pretty important buildings really for Melbourne in, in, in what they have to say about society at a point in time. There is not a hope in hell that you would get something like that approved in today's planning framework that I could see um, given, given the challenges that we face and the way that ideas of neighbourhood character have come to bear on what should and shouldn't be approved and th- those processes as they play out. I wonder the, sort of the dangers of, of sort of putting that, that cap on, you know, the potential of what people can come up with and, 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 and what sort of city that creates. It's a tricky one, though, because, I mean, we're probably getting a little bit off topic here, but it's um, the parameters that go around many European cities that we love so much, particularly around height. You know, just Berlin is cut off at 25 metres, that's it. You can't go above it. It just means that it protects people's light, it protects people's, you know, amenity, it protects the street. It's, it has a scale where everyone's still connected to the street. I mean, I personally, the residential projects I, I find the most engaging are ones that are five, six, seven storeys max, so that you've still got this connection with the street, which you start losing above that. At that level or below, you feel like you're part of the street and you're part of the suburb in which you're living in. So... 
And that's, I think, one of the great things about those European cities or South American cities or, you know, that, 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 that kind of hype thing when I think Melbourne doesn't have that planning code and hence we get this very spiky residential buildings going up. It's pretty much whatever you can get, you go to. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's a great outcome, but it is what, we've, it's what we're working with. Mm. So speaking to those points about you know designing to to create nice spaces and for people to to dwell if there is a strong sense of community, tell us about the community at Nightingale too. What feedback have you have you had from residents? Oh, uh, look, look. I mean, the resident community is in there. Um, they're loving it. Uh, they've been involved in the project. Just about all of them have been involved in the project from very early on, way before construction. So during the design process, through a series of design presentations along the way and they formed a community pretty early on so they ended up um, with a whatsapp and a, and, a, and a facebook page and very quickly organized themselves and that was i think one of the nicest things once they actually moved in now the day they moved in they knew each other they already knew each other so you know they've been borrowing screwdrivers from each other the day they moved in i mean or a cup of sugar or whatever that's it's great to see that that so you turn up on site or on the building and everyone knows each other and they're getting on really well and you see photos of them having barbecues together and um, I think that's a partly attributed to the building, partly attributed to the model, probably mostly attributed to the, to, to the fact that they were introduced early on um, rather than it being a turnkey thing where they bought off a plan and then didn't see anything, didn't see the building, didn't see anything about the building until the day they moved in, at which point they met their neighbours. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, these ideas around community, I guess, um we sort of think long and hard about this question and I guess, you know, one way I like to think about it is, you know, I grew up, I grew up down sort of uh, down, down Parkdale and we, we lived in sort of a, you know, a street. It was a really great street um, that had wide footpaths and lots of different families sort of at a point in time with similar sort of aged kids and, you know, at a point in time, there was a really great community. There was a strong community and, you know, people really got on well. And and then, like, over time, things change. Someone moves out. The old lady next door passed away. Someone moved in that didn't quite mesh into the community, the existing community or what perhaps people's perception of what community was as, as well as, say, the previous owner. Um, but, you know, over time, things changed and we're not talking about, like, long periods of time we're sort of talking five ten years increments and I guess like for me this is this broader idea that we sort of lose sight of a little bit we kind of get fixated on what our perceived idea of community is but the reality is community is sort of what exists at a point in time anyway I feel and this broader idea of you know community being made up of different people who might have different views and might not necessarily see the world the way you see the world but that community is about kind of getting along with people who you might have a difference of opinion with you know and it seems like like it's a little bit of a broader manifestation of sort of like where we're at in society today of you know we sort of surround ourselves with you know our social media followings and there's a few echo chambers around the place and really hear what we want to hear and and I don't know I just don't know if that's such a great outcome so I think one of the key points, though, and this is like what I think Six Degrees do incredibly well, which is kind of designing space in a way that enables 
people to come together really effectively, but also importantly enables people to kind of retreat and have privacy um, really effectively. And I think that, you know, if your focus is in designing space that, that enables for really natural interaction, then you're facilitating kind of like a framework for, for positive engagement and for, for kind of healthy community to, to evolve over time. For me, that, that will potentially be the legacy of a building like Nightingale 2 and, you know, for us in York and others that, that we're collectively working on where we've kind of got the bones, the bones are really good. And so over time, you're going to see a really strong performance and a healthy kind of engagement. In simple terms, like we, we, we introduce people early and they get to know each other. You know, pros and cons in that, this sort of... Um, and we, we definitely saw the negatives of that where project blowouts, managing sort of commercial relationships with builders, complicated issues to deal with. Managing expectations. And then, yeah, there's, there's, so there's a pre-existing community, but they're not yet in place and sort of things festered away a little bit. And it was, it was hard to manage that in a way that was necessarily constructive. Um, and there were certain things that we couldn't tell people that wasn't appropriate to necessarily tell people when we're in the middle of trying to get the best possible outcome we can. And, you know, we've got a builder that's a little bit late that needs a little bit of a wrap over the knuckles. And, you know, also at the end of the day where I'm sort of a delivery expert and James is a design expert, we're not communication experts. Uh, and the project wasn't resourced with a communication expert to help us deliver messages in a way that, you know, could manage expectations. And that and that's like challenging brutally challenging uh, ultimately and a real learning experience yeah i mean to add to that i mean most of the most of the relationships with our with the purchases have been very really good and they've been very happy but the the, the moments that that Liam's talking about there were challenging moments yes where we hadn't shared we hadn't shared everything because we couldn't or it was inappropriate at that particular time and these sorts of things but overall i think the community's great the community's loved moving in and I think I guess, I guess I'd just add to it that, to, off the back of what Liam said about this idea about providing a framework for community to evolve and develop, a lot of that is actually pretty simple and comes down to the design of the building in the sense that, as an example, the open walkways, as opposed to a dark, double-loaded corridor with a lift at the end of it and a staircase, where no one will stop and talk to each other, or they might grunt at each other on the way past, you know, if you have an open walkway with sunshine coming in, um, or even if it's a windy day, whatever, if you're, it just and plants everywhere and a view of the city or a view out over the suburbs and the greenery, then you're much more likely to stop and have a chat to your neighbour who you happen to bump into on the way out your front door. Um, so it's just providing those sorts of spaces uh, or a rooftop garden or ver the various other spaces, but it's the incidental spaces that really enable people to have a chat, bump into each other, because you can't do it in a corridor yeah. or a lift. That, that really works immensely well. And like I said, take, taking that point even further, you know, like the open walkways for me, like, you know, opening up to the street in a way that really successfully sort of enables the building itself to better integrate with the community around it. So there's those incidental interactions. You might not necessarily even say anything to someone, but just like face facial recognition more often than not, all of a sudden there's familiarity and, like, next time you see someone in the street, you're more likely to say, oh, 
you know, you're from that building, blah, blah, blah. It's like too often our architecture, kind of been using this analogy a little bit lately, but docks like the Ruby Princess in the middle of a suburb and uh, kind of uses really reflective materials that kind of, you know, reflect place back upon itself and don't really invite people in. And you've got no idea who lives there. And you can't see anyone and people mm-hmm. drive in through basement car parks and come up lifts. They don't see anyone else from other levels because they don't interact. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that sort of, that typology I think has a lot to answer for. I think, you know, the perceived negativity of living in, in apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And speaking to, you know, design and I suppose how those, those open corridors kind of fu- have a you know, functional reason to be as well. Tell us about the ESD kind of features of the building or how Nightingale demonstrates best practice ESD and then what you've kind of started to see through testing and operation about how they've actually kind of met sustainability targets, you know, now people have moved in. It's pretty unusual. Just the site itself, I think, helped a lot. The site, the fact that um, it's a site unencumbered by buildings around it. Um, it's also a site that the long side of which is unencumbered and faces north. So to find a site like that, if you imagine all the sites up and down are major roads, they may well have a long face facing north, but there's another building there and there's a building to the south and they've got a small elevation on the east and a small elevation on the west. We had exactly that, except that we had no, we had no buildings north or south, east or west, um, which then all of a sudden meant that we could get our sunlight in from the north and we were unencumbered on each side so we could put windows on every side. We had to negotiate a little bit with, with Victrack for the, the windows on the west because of their land, but essentially we got windows in, windows and openings in all sides, which then all of a sudden opens it up to say you know, passive, very, from a very basic point of view, we could deliver great passive design, so good sunlight coming into your living rooms, good engaged thermal mass, the open walkways to the south, which all of a sudden meant that we could get open windows on the south as well. Every apartment has at least two faces. Um, most have three faces where they can get windows or doors in. Um, and all of a sudden we've got cross-ventilation to every single apartment. So that's probably the most important thing uh, in terms of the performance of the building. But then we also introduced things like very well-sealed building um, through things like the bink lift and turn and tilt and turn lift and slide uh, mechanisms around the doors and windows. Um, and then all sorts of other things that we can talk about too, but they're the, just the key things. Don't, don't have too much more to add um, to what James has just said. I think sites, everything, you know, access to natural light, cross-flow ventilation um, aspect gets most of your gains. I think, you know, from a performance perspective, sustainability is complicated and there's a lot of people kind of more broadly out in the market claiming to be sustainable we know from practice that like being genuinely sustainable takes a deep commitment and it requires a better approach to the way that you design, integrate, understand the systems that you're installing, you know, and right down to the trades that you have working on site and actually putting putting the building together. And then commissioning's a whole a whole separate ballgame. It's sort of um, we've learnt we've learnt a significant amount out of some of the projects we've been involved in over the last four to five years. And you know, it's easy in theory and then you go and kind of implement this stuff and there, there's there's a process. We're really kind of excited we've sort of we've, we've come over that hump of learning and just the other day we received the first round of results we're running a post-occupancy review on Nightingale 2 with RMIT 
haven't even kind of had the chance to go through these with James yet. It's only sort of the first three months worth of data, but uh, just sitting down with our green building engineer, Steve Moller, and yesterday having, having a look at those and sort of testing for things like temperature, humidity, CO2, and how that relates to how much energy the spaces are using, how comfortable the spaces are for occupation. And it's going to be kind of exciting to run through, um, you know, the balance of 12 months data and extract that from the 10 apartments and really cross correlate that against some of our design assumptions um, and work towards, I guess, improving our understanding of what it takes to build more sustainably. You know, in, in other countries, they've just got a really big head start on us in, in Australia and, and, and more broadly the build, building in, you know, built environment industry here. And um, we, don't do, we don't tend to do post-occupancy evaluation here either. Not so, at all. No, you know, you, yeah. you, you, get a, you get a certificate saying you've got so many stars, but who knows how well it's been built, how well it's sealed and how well it's performing. Yeah, so. yeah. Pretty excited about having that knowledge and being able to incorporate it. So we've spoken about how, you know, Nightingale two demonstrates all these you know advanced kind of design and community-led uh, attributions which would could be a complete game changer in terms of apartment living and how that's perceived in Australia we've also spoken about how the site is unique to what extent is this site and this project replicable and to what extent can it be delivered as as better housing options at scale in Australia you're, you're really well placed to answer this James like I can give the straightforward answer which is Nightingale worked really well and we we went out searching for a similar sort of site and we, we were lucky to come across kind of the site that we're currently working on in South Melbourne for us in York and a very similar typology to Nightingale to long narrow block open walkways but thinking slightly differently about the typology um, having eight larger two-storey um, sort of terrace style apartments so genuinely introducing that sort of family home typology into the apartment building that's really location and market specific that wouldn't have worked in Fairfield economically. South Melbourne's unique in that, you know, similar sort of sized uh, terrace house, workers' cottage style houses around that area, you know, with a small rear courtyard and a car park on the street. They price in at about what we can, we can sell these particular apartments for, so economically it works. Your best place to talk more about, I guess, that Nightingale Two typology and what sort of what you're seeing more broadly. Yeah, I mean, around I, I, the market, I don't think there's any reason why it can't. It seems to be um, replicable, um, uh, specifically to the the sort of site we got. Uh, there's a, there is a lot of Vic Track land. It's not it's not readily available it's ostensibly for sale um but it's pretty hard to get out of the clutches of the big of big track or for them to decide that they actually want to sell it um but there is a lot of that sort of land up and down the tracks out of out of out of melbourne which is particularly good obviously because then it means you are by definition close to the railway um and public transport there are those sites um but even 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 without those sites there are sites around Melbourne where it, where it works. Um, I mean, we're not really doing anything that a typical developer is not doing. We're just pulling various levers and reattributing, I guess, the priorities. Um, so we're pushing priorities in different directions. But we still have to, at the end of the day, show the bank the same feasibility results in order to get funding. So we still have to do the same thing. We just choose where we're doing it. So, like as Liam said, are there two bathrooms or 
one bathroom for a two-bedder? And do we have a shared laundry, which as well adds community, but you've got a kick-ass laundry on the roof um, with a whole lot of commercial washing machines in it? You know, so it's these sorts of things. Um, and where do you spend the money on these projects? So without a doubt, it's replicable. And in fact, it is being replicated. So you know, Nottingale 3 is under construction and Nottingale Village, which is almost an urban, well, is in fact an urban um, condition of a really gritty block in Brunswick, which has been turned into seven, six or seven Nightingale buildings by different architects. And I suppose as a, as a final wrap-up question, what has been your best and most challenging memory from, from the process of building Nightingale 2? <laughs> challenging? It was a complete nightmare, um, which we went into with our eyes wide open, to a degree, the proximity of, of the building to high-voltage lines. Um, so we almost didn't buy the site early on. So Liam found the site and came to me and said, great site, what do you reckon? And we looked at it and we thought, yes, yeah, this is cracker. Um, those wires look a bit, mm, I don't know about that, we better do a bit of work around that. Anyway, we were doing work around that and then I did a diagram um, that showed the exclusion zones around the high-voltage lines that we had to both the north and the south and came up with this kind of funny champagne um, shaped built zone that we were allowed to build pretty much that no one except perhaps Ashton Rand McDougall would have built a building in the shape of and all credit to them um, so when we had a look at that and went oh well this is this is this is crazy we're going to have to underground these lines and that's going to cost us a lot of money and maybe on the other side we can do this so we took we, we did our due diligence at that point we went back to the, I think we were probably the only people who were but still interested in the site I think they were back to them basically and said look we can't come anywhere near your price and took off half a million dollars you know no we didn't we just said we're not interested I think and they came back to us two weeks later and said well if you were what would you give us and we took half a million dollars off and um, more or less and and we ended up negotiating a a price and that was enough just (laughs) probably maybe not quite enough but um, it was hard work and um, and then Metro and VicTrack changed the rules on us halfway through around the, the, the high voltage on the other side after we'd had a town planning permit, after we'd been through VCAT. They then said, actually, what we told you that you could do, we've changed our mind, you can't do that now. Um, so we had to pull the whole building back. So we had to redesign it and and then convince Darabin Council that we didn't have to go back through a planning process and we could get it, um, a permit still through um, secondary consent, which we did because it wasn't affecting anyone uh, any of the um, uh, of the objectors, but still, it was a tortuous process to get through that, um, particular, those particular issues, along with other servicing issues. But I'm not sure. What do you think, Liam? Anything worse? I think that the easiest thing we did was buy the site. Uh, incredibly challenging project. I think one of the really exciting things about this project is demonstrating the potential for these slivers of land around our you know, ex- existing infrastructure, rail, um, which generally is close to existing kind of essential amenity. Uh, and that's key. Uh, and, and we've demonstrated that it's viable to deliver this scale of well, a building like this close to that sort of infrastructure, which kind of the traditional wisdom is it's not um, due to the complexity. And, and I think one of the key factors that, that has to be acknowledged as to why we've been able to achieve that is ultimately our, our investors that, you know, invested in the project quite a long time ago and, and you know, accept a capped return on, on their equity, which is sort of like at the heart of, 
I guess, the social business model, if you like, to the um, first two 90-goal model projects in particular, which was sort of saying, you know, you, you invest X and, and you get sort of X back and there's no time cost uh, to that to that capital. So an investor in investing in this sort of project is sort of saying, well, you know what, like financial returns, obviously very important, but I'm also investing for other reasons because I reckon we can do better uh, in the way that we design and execute buildings around our city. And, and our investors have invested in that. They've invested in, in the intangible of, you know, moving sort of our broader industry forward and it's these smaller projects and these points in time and the energy that's put into these projects by teams of pretty passionate people that sort of you know that again hopefully we've created another you know, little insertion in into into the built form fabric that that can be you know can be inspiration for other more traditional developers and i know you know six degrees is working with plenty of those more traditional developers who want to do better and and a project like Nightingale 2 has provided them with, you know, sometimes again back to that point, seeing's believing, you know, it's just it's provided them with the ability to turn around to their their investors and their project teams and sort of say, well, hey, it's possible. You can sell these projects. People love this stuff and there's value there. And and that for me is probably one of the, the big ideas and one of the really big positives out of Nightingale 2 is what it means, you know, to, to move the built in environment forward. Thank you so much. So we've heard today the story um, of how Nightingale 2 has demonstrated, as Liam was saying, the value of well-designed, sustainable projects who are notwithstanding the challenges involved in, in their design and delivery. They shift the perception of what apartment living can be in Australia. Thank you for listening. Thank you.